Some years ago when I was traveling and practicing in Asia, I found myself amongst large groups of Tibetan monks and nuns, sometimes in the hundreds, five or six hundred. And usually we were together in very hot and crowded conditions. All of us listening to Dharma discourses, and sometimes they lasted two or three hours. You're lucky. (laughs) There was often a lot of um, bobbing and nodding going on during these hours of Dharma discourse. Some of you might be familiar with that movement. Um, One day when I was sitting in one of these large groups listening to the Dalai Lama, he was actually giving a, a Dharma talk on Vipassana practice. And there was a Tibetan monk sitting very close to me. Everybody was uh, body to body, kind of like sardines. And right in front of him was another Tibetan monk. The man sitting next to me was bobbing up and down. And at one point he bobbed forward and his head came to rest in the center of the back of the monk in front of him. And he just stayed there, sleeping peacefully. (laughs) And the monk in front of him didn't move at all. He let his friend take a nap, and uh, after a while the friend woke up and continued listening. A man that I know who uh, now lives at the Insight Meditation Society, this was some years ago, he was practicing there, He was sitting a retreat, and he was going through that same uh, motion of mind and body, and unfortunately there wasn't anyone close enough in front of him. And he bobbed forward and bumped his head right on the floor (laughs) and woke up very quickly, needless to say. So these, these examples, too, maybe extreme, maybe not so extreme examples of uh, sleepiness, or as Trudy named it the other night, sloth and torpor. The Pali word, I, I like Pali, so I like to share the words sometimes. The Pali word for sloth and torpor is tina mida. The first word, tina, Um, It's often translated, that's torpor, and it means a very weak mind, kind of a shrunken mind, a withered mind. And it's sometimes described in the classical teachings as a, a viscous or slippery or slimy mind. (laughs) <laughs> unable to grasp the meditation object, unable to grasp it at all with no clarity, no strength, very slippery. We all know those states, those moments in our practice. 
our body may feel kind of thick and heavy, lumpish. We feel lethargic, maybe think of ourselves as lazy. Not so easy to pay attention. <coughs> that lively, very fiery quality of our practice just seems to have disappeared somewhere, gone somewhere else. And it can happen at any point in our practice. It may certainly happen at the beginning of a meditation retreat when we come from a very busy life, very active life, maybe a life with a lot of emotional and work, all kinds of stress, as it's called these days, and we come and we sit down and we be quiet and we're exhausted. And so we feel tired for a couple of days. But that passes. And this kind of energy, these energies, tinamida, sloth and torpor, can come at any point in practice. In the Buddhist teachings, These energies of our mind, energies of our heart, are often personified. Many of the energies of mind and heart are often personified. They're kind of given a a personage and and often an image, actually. (coughs) So the forces of darkness, these states of mind that can entrap us, these states of mind that can blind us, that can keep us in the dark, so to say, They're called the armies of Mara. Mara is the personification of all of these forces. And they don't fare very well in the light of mindfulness. They don't like the light shined on them. It's an amazing thing about these dark forces. They don't like to be seen. And so they they shrink and they fade when the light of mindfulness, the light of awareness, is shined on them. In this brightness of awareness, this brightness of mindfulness, these energies, these very kind of dark, blinding energies, just become transparent. They become cloud-like. And their seeming dark solidity can't sustain itself in this light. So this evening we'll be taking a second look at the hindrances from the perspective of our mindfulness, our insight meditation practice. Back for a moment to sloth and torpor, sleepiness. It's essential in order to wake up out of this potentially debilitating state. It's essential to really first acknowledge its presence. Be conscious of it, however fuzzily that might be. To see it without judging ourselves for having this experience the sloth and torpor brothers have come to visit. And they appear on the scene simply because 
of certain conditions. They're conditioned states of mind. It's not our fault. It's not who we are. It's not our true nature. Our true nature isn't a sleepy, lazy, foggy person. We're just having these visitors come by. The true nature of awareness is very bright, very clear, very lucid, and very lively. It's very important, it's most important that we come to know any of these difficult states of mind by simply being aware of them instead of judging ourselves for being a bad meditator, a bad yogi, as meditators are often called, for not living up to our particular expectations of how we think this retreat's supposed to be unfolding, how we think we're supposed to be in the retreat. This judgment, self-judgment and expectation just adds to what might already be some stressful happening. It adds to our maybe already sense of exhaustion. It's really, really important to just directly see our experience without all of the layers we might think onto it. This is a very important point. It's important to see our experience directly without all the layers we think onto it. Sometimes this energy of sleepiness, of lethargy, of thickness, is really about resistance or a fear, about fear uh, in relation to some um, unpleasant or maybe fearful state of mind or body that might be coming up. So in this case, it's very much of a mental state not a physically based one, although we experience it physically. It's our mind's way of avoiding certain things, avoiding certain issues, certain emotions that it finds unpleasant or difficult, too difficult at the moment. So we feel sleepy. We feel like going to sleep as a way of turning off the mind or dulling our sensory perceptions, dulling our thinking mind. Sometimes we may feel a kind of spaciness or a heaviness in the mind. I think some of you have actually mentioned that. And this is really um, a conditional state that's brought about by an imbalance in our concentration and our energy in our practice. And this might be happening because, for instance, we've been practicing metta. We've been really focusing the mind in a particular way, deepening our focus of mind, our concentration. As we switch, move into the Vipassana practice, there may not be that uh, 
bright, lively energy so available immediately, although the focus and the concentration is there. And so we may slip in and out of brightness. We may slip in and out of presence. And this changes. This will change as the energy comes up and the transition is uh, settling in. The slipping in and out won't be such a uh, happening. And our energy will be full and we'll be able to be more present with a mindful attention. Sometimes when this is happening, I found for myself that um, remembering some really inspiring teaching that I've either read or heard, or for me also sometimes remembering a person uh, that's really been inspiring for me. It's actually very similar, uh, maybe not with the phrases, but similar to the practice uh, of metta with a benefactor. And that brings in a lot of energy. Very helpful. That energy that needs to balance the developing concentration. When this heaviness or thickness of mind is expressed through our body and it comes about because of resistance or fear in relation to particular emotions or memories or sensations that might be arising. We may or may not be aware of this, but we certainly are probably aware of the thickness. We may just want to lay down and go to sleep. You know, that feeling of wanting to crawl under the covers and put them over your head. It's actually useful not to do this, but it's also important to acknowledge the feeling and begin very gently with a loving, compassionate heart, gently, slowly, easily, to open with an attitude of interest, an attitude of investigation. For instance, maybe just simply beginning to notice the sensations in the body more and more clearly. How does our body feel? Bringing this interested awareness to the sensations of sleepiness, of heaviness itself. How our breathing is happening. The sensations around our face and our face, our eyes, our mouth. If we can arouse enough interest in our bodily experience, in resistance or fear that's in a sense disguised as tiredness, we can be then maybe begin to experience a wakefulness in which our interest and our energy is much more present and it feeds itself. It feeds itself. So now there's the possibility of actually experiencing, seeing what's underneath the surface. We might now begin to recognize this sleepiness, this dullness, this heaviness of mind was a cover-up, a depression, so to say, 
that's really a resistance to deeper feelings, maybe of sadness or loneliness, anger, feelings of fear, terror, feelings of the fear of not being good enough, of not being able to control what's coming up in our mind, and our heart. And then, there's, at this point, there's the possibility of a whole new level of practice opening up. The poet May Sarton said, if I can take the dark with open <laughs> eyes and call it seasonal, not harsh or strange. It's very important, very essential in the uncovering of suppressed or depressed states of mind that we bring a very <coughs> loving, very compassionate heart into this process of our investigation, as I just mentioned. And we're very fortunate in this retreat that we've been practicing metta. We have that, as someone described in the group today, this bed of metta that holds us in our practice. It's important in this bed of metta that holds us in our awareness practice, our investigation, our mindfulness, that we don't go over our edge. We don't uh, go over the edge and honor our limitations. And as I mentioned last night, those edges keep moving out as we get stronger in this light of awareness, this so-called magic of mindfulness. A poem by a Native American woman named Joy Harjo. To pray, you open your whole self to sky, to earth, to sun, to moon, to one whole voice that is you. And know that there is more that you can't see, can't hear, can't know, except in moments steadily growing and in languages that aren't always sound but other circles of motion, like Eagle that Sunday morning over Salt River, circled in blue sky, in wind, swept our hearts clean with sacred wings. We see you, we see ourselves, and know that we must take the utmost care and kindness in all things. Breathe in, knowing we are made of all this, and breathe knowing we are truly blessed because we were born and die soon in a true circle of motion, like eagle rounding out the morning inside us. We pray that it will be done in beauty, in beauty. And from Nisargadatta Maharaj, don't bully yourself. Violence will make you hard and rigid. Do not fight with what you take to be obstacles on your way. Just be interested in them. Watch them. Observe. Inquire. Let anything happen, good or bad. Just don't let yourself be submerged by what happens. The next quality of mind or army of Mara 
I like that expression. (laughs) Uh, Can make things very difficult. It's a very strong energy that often makes a lot of waves in our practice. It's kind of like trying to ride a canoe in very, very choppy water. It's restlessness, agitation. I don't remember if Trudy said the literal translation. It's called worry and flurry. (laughs) Our mind is very busy thinking about practice, pondering philosophical views. Maybe, or thinking and wondering about the person sitting next to us or in front of us or behind us. Or maybe we're thinking about someone in the hall that we're friends with, related to. Maybe we're having a fantasy about someone in the hall that we'd like to be related to. (laughs) (coughs) Maybe we're wondering if we're doing it right, or maybe we think we should copy somebody else in the room who is doing it right. On and on and on we go. (laughs) If we buy into all of this worry and flurry, we're actually feeding it. We're helping it grow. We're helping it to flourish. If we water the seeds of agitation, if we water the seeds of restlessness, in our mind and heart by identifying with the thoughts, taking them up. All these thoughts that are just coming and going. We're missing our appointment with life, as Thich Nhat Hanh says. We're missing our practice. We're missing the moment of our practice. We're imprisoned. Someone today in our group used uh, quite an amazing description of a feeling she was having. She said she felt like a worm in hot sand. I know that feeling. <laughs> we probably all do. And so again, if we can open to this natural, lucid, light of awareness that's always available. Open with it and shine it on this dark cloud, this seemingly substantial character. We can see that all these ideas, all these worries, these thoughts, these swirling flurries of mind, we can see them for what they really are. And so with this moment of awareness as it lights up the sky of our mind, so to say, there's the possibility of no longer being locked up or bound by this worry and flurry. The incessant tangents of thought no longer hold us if we see them clearly. It's just thought happening like breath happens, like sound happens. It's very seductive, though. It's very seductive to take it up, to figure it out. It might be entertaining, 
might be intriguing. It's very seductive. But it sweeps us away. So if we can see clearly, we can begin again. And just begin again and again and again. It's sometimes helpful to open to hearing, giving our busy mind a bigger field to play in, so to say. And then gently come back to awareness of breathing. The sounds just arise and pass, quite obviously on their own. So it's helpful to open to hearing. It helps to bring a focus and a calmness to the mind and a much less identified way of paying attention. Sometimes restlessness uh, manifests primarily in the body, as I know some of you have experienced. We might feel like we just want to jump out of our legs, jump out of ourself. There's an enormous amount of restless energy moving through our body, and this can come at any time in our practice just pops up sometimes. Thirty-two years ago, when I um, first gave birth, this was my actual, actually first formal teaching in concentration, mindfulness, and insight practice. Although it wasn't called that at the time. It was uh, called the Lamaze Training of Natural Childbirth. But it really is a a practice, a teaching and a training and a practice in being fully present, being fully awake, being fully aware in a process that happens by itself. I was certainly very much a part of it, very deeply involved, but it happened by itself. Over the months prior to the actual birth, we studied and we practiced. We learned the ways that the various stages and phases of birth, of the birthing process, manifest. And it's basically the same for all births, with variations on a theme, just like life. Our unrealistic expectations and fears and fantasies were quite substantially decreased, quite transformed as we came to understand the nature of the process. More and more deeply through our practice and our study. There's a phase, I'm telling this story for a reason, there's a phase, a period of time during this process of birth, towards the end, just before the baby moves through the birth canal, the last section of the birth canal, and just before the urge to push gets very, very strong, there's a period of extremely intense restlessness. The legs become like jumpy, very twitchy. There's a tremendous amount of restless energy that's moving through the body at this time. And I felt like, and I know other women have felt similarly, we just want to jump out of our legs jump out of our body, just like when we're sitting on the cushion. Very similar. The training for the birthing was to not try to stop it, which would have been totally impossible anyway. Not try to control it, which would have been totally impossible. Not try to repress it, 
not ignore it, which wasn't possible, and not to try to distract ourselves from it. The training was to just be very present with it, to know it, to know it impersonally for what it is, a conditioned phenomena happening. It was so helpful. Maybe not such a pleasant phenomena, not such an easy phenomena, but nevertheless it was what was happening. And to allow our breathing to do a very natural thing, to speed up to a a kind of pant, We actually practiced this breath before the birth in the classes so that we would be used to it when it would happen naturally. If you've ever watched um, or observed animals giving birth, any kind of animals, during that last phase of the birthing process, the mother will begin to pant. It's very natural. It's kind of subtle, so if you haven't watched carefully, you might not have noticed it, but it happens with all animals. When I lived on the farm, we saw it many times with different animals giving birth. And we're no different than that. Although we've been conditioned in ways that we think we are, and so we often don't allow this natural process to happen. So the instruction I was given um, was to let the breath do as it will and not to try to control it. And we were instructed to give our primary attention, actually, at that particular point, this very restless phase, uh, to give our primary attention to the breath. Give a focus, a steadiness of focus uh, to the breath, which helps to bring, as we know, a calmness, a steadiness. And it did during this very difficult period. I have no doubts that um, it could feel quite unbearable, actually, without this kind of mindful attention, this kind of training that I received. Getting myself out of the way, but at the same time being very fully present in the process, fully aware, mindfully absorbed in the midst of this process of birthing was very, very intense and not easy in the relative sense of things, but really quite okay and very definitely incredibly interesting and filled with a very, for me, a very profound sense of wonderment. The same possibilities exist in our practice. The same possibilities. If this restlessness in our meditation practice is very persistent, we might do some things to nurture ourselves. Take care of ourselves with loving kindness. Take care of ourselves joyfully. Take a, a slow walk and open up our senses, smelling, seeing, feeling. We might take a bath. Uh, at the lunch period or in the evening, a warm bath. And then when we come back to our sitting practice, if the restlessness is still there, 
then there's maybe more of a possibility of bringing our attention to it if it's if it still persists sometimes as in the birthing process just giving attention to the breath bringing a steadiness and a focus and a kind of uh, ease into the mind helps to be with the restlessness and helps then to possibly open to it itself. The next hindrance um, I'd like to speak about is doubt. This is a difficult one. Potential obstruction to our practice. And it comes in a number of different guises. When I was a child, <clears throat> there was a, a record that my, we used to play. It was my favorite record, actually. We didn't have tapes then. And it was called The Little Engine That Could. Some of you might know it. Um, there was this big train and it was Christmas time and the train was fully loaded with toys for the children and they lived, the children lived on the other side of the mountain. The engine didn't have quite enough steam, quite enough power to get to the other side of the mountain with all these toys. It needed help. The only help available was this little engine. So it asked the little engine, to help. It was important to get these toys over the mountain. The little engine doubted, doubted itself very much whether it could do any help at all. But this was the only possibility. So it had to try. It knew that the children had to have their toys for Christmas. As the little engine inched slowly up the mountain with the big engine and all the cars with the toys behind it, slowly up the mountain, inching inch by inch, it began to say very tentatively at first to itself, and then getting stronger and stronger, I think I can, 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 all the way up to the top of the mountain. And then as they rounded the top of the mountain, the little engine said, I thought I could, 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 all the way back down. I've thought of that, obviously, a number of times when I've been practicing, and um, it still helps me sometimes. As we practice, lots and lots of difficulties arise, physical, emotional, Sometimes our practice might feel kind of slow, not very exciting. Our expectations and fantasies might not be being met. And all of these conditions are grounds for doubt to arise. (coughs) It's very natural as we practice um, for doubts to come up and strong doubts to come up. I think all of us have experienced that. What am I doing here anyway? I mean, why did I even come to this thing? Just sitting here, not getting anything, that feeling. 
I mean, it can come in the midst of a metta, even. Or sometimes we might feel like it's too hard and we just can't do it. Maybe we'll try it another time, we think. Maybe I'll go to sleep, we might think. There's a lot of doubting. Doubting in ourself, doubting in the practice. Doubting in the teachers. They don't know anything anyway. What are they talking about? On and on and on. Our mind is very tricky. Very tricky. A quote from Nisargadatta again. By knowing your mind, you may avoid your mind disabling you. You have to be very alert or else your mind will play false with you. The antidote for doubt is the same as it is for all the other hindrances. It's the recognition of it, the acceptance of it, and the not buying into it. But recognizing that it's happening, observation and investigation, a mindful attention to the ways in which doubt manifests, the the flip-flopping of the mind, this mind going yes, no, maybe, now, later, maybe, yes, no, back and forth and back and forth. We can begin with a mindful attention to see, to note the changes, note the confusions more and more clearly as they move in and out of our mind. And not buying into it, not contracting around the confusion, the unsureness, but opening to it with the mind of discovery, the possibility of discovery. The thing, the most important thing to do is not to let this mist, this cloud of doubt, to become a very thick fog and completely engulf us. We're completely lost then at that point. It's hard to start again at that point. It's very important in the teachings to question for the purposes of clarification. That's not the kind of doubt I'm talking about. That's a healthy doubt. What I'm talking about is what's sometimes called skeptical doubt. And this kind of doubt really demands an unrealistic level of certainty an unrealistic level of proof before we make any kind of commitment to undertake a practice. Skeptical doubt is a kind of vagueness, actually. When we're undecided, we're often vague. Or when we don't want to decide, we often sort of resort to vagueness. We don't want to commit ourselves to something. We can kind of resort or move into this mind of vagueness. We're quite good at rationalizing 
why we don't want to do something, why we don't want to commit ourselves to something. There's always something else we could do at any time. There's always lots of options open to us. There's a a simile that the Buddha used um, in his teaching about a man who was wounded by a poison arrow. And this man, instead of immediately pulling out the poison arrow, proceeded to ask a whole lot of questions. He felt that certain facts were important before he pulled out the poison arrow. He said, who shot the arrow? What does he look like? What's his name? What's the arrow made from, etc.? And of course, the man would die before he ever discovered the answer to any of his questions. All he had to do was simply just pull out the arrow. Our poison arrow, so to say, is spiritual ignorance, just simply not yet understanding. And so to be rid of this uh, ignorance, this lack of understanding, we have to act, we have to practice, we have to practice, spiritually practice. No amount of intellectual questioning will by itself alleviate us from this ignorance. No amount of intellectual questioning will alleviate us from not understanding, from this actually painful place of skeptical doubt. This is from Goethe, and it really can be applied to our uh, intention to practice, our meditation practice. Until one is committed, there is hesitancy, the chance to draw back, Always in effectiveness concerning all acts of initiative and creation, there is one elementary truth, the ignorance of which kills thousands, kills countless ideas and splendid plans. The moment one definitely commits oneself, then providence moves too. All sorts of things occur to help one that would never otherwise have occurred. A whole stream of events, issues from the, from the decision raising in one's favor all manner of unforeseen incidents and meetings and material assistance, which no one person could have dreamed would have come his or her way. Whatever you can do or dream, you can begin it. Boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. Begin it now. There's a powerful insight that is possible in our observation, in our seeing clearly uh, the doubting mind, the deeper intuitive understanding of impermanence is potentially uh, an insight that arises as we see all of this fluttering and changing of our mind, coming and going and coming and going, seeing the unconditional nature of thoughts, of beliefs, of opinions. We can touch the depth of, or a depth of the understanding of impermanence if we can open to this. 
toward the end of the Buddha's uh, long night sitting under the Bodhi tree after Mara, this personification of all the dark and potentially obstructive forces of our mind, after Mara had let fly at the Buddha all the poison arrows of delusion, of distraction, and all of the other potential hindrances, none of them stuck. And so Mara finally shot the last arrow at Siddhartha, hoping that this one would stick deeply and firmly, this last poison arrow, the arrow of doubt. Mara said, what makes you think you have the right to be sitting here? What makes you think you have the right to be sitting here how and where you are? Just who do you think you are anyway? And the just about to be Buddha, with his very deep confidence, his fearlessness, his amazing grace, he simply reached down and touched the earth with the fingertips of his right hand, letting Mara know that the, the earth was bearing witness to his right to be sitting where and how he was. And Mara was defeated, never again to appear to the Buddha. The roots of the contraction of doubt are based in fear. Fear disguised as doubt. Our self-doubts, particularly our self-doubts, are actually grounded in old habit patterns learned a long, long time ago that automatically pop, pop up in our practice. They stick themselves on our life in various ways, including our meditation practice. This doubt of not being good enough, not being able to do it, not being able to sit how and where we are, not being lovable, not being likable. All of these learned habits of our mind, they'll creep in to our life, stick on our practice. So it's important to notice the depths, the roots of doubt with awareness to begin to mindfully acknowledge and accept seeing this often deeply, deeply ingrained conditioning, experiencing the energy of it with an open heart, an open mind. And then it actually begins to loosen its grip We loosen as we loosen our grip on it. And the opposite of doubt begins to arise, a faith, a trust. And it's not a blind faith or a blind trust not an ignorant faith or a deluded kind of faith, but a very bright, lively faith that's born out of our illuminating investigation, born out of the light in our practice, the light of our awareness. Again from Nisargadatta, in a dialogue with a student, the student asked him, what is the real cause of suffering? 
And he answered, self-identification with the limited. Sensations at such, as such, however strong, do not cause suffering. It is the mind bewildered by wrong ideas, addicted to thinking, I am this, I am that, that fears loss and craves gain and suffers when frustrated. And then at another point, Nisargadatta said, by giving attention to your living, feeling, and thinking, you free yourself from them and go beyond them. Don't ask how it happens. Just search within yourself. Sometimes we're afraid of our fear. We're afraid to look directly at it. Especially if when we've kind of taken a peek, it's not been so easy. And maybe we haven't had, at another time, any avenue for the reflection that was helpful in those difficult times. But we really have to do it ourselves. Sometimes it's important and it's helpful to have uh, someone to help us, to help us give clear reflection along the way. But essentially we have to do it ourselves. Being with fear isn't easy. And so we protect ourselves from fear sometimes with doubt. And sometimes this is actually a skillful thing to do. It might help us to take care along the way at certain times. But if we get caught in doubt and we take it as our primary relationship to our practice or our primary relationship to our life, we're actually living in and out of fear. As we get stronger and stronger through seeing more and more clearly with a very patient, very compassionate heart for ourselves, we can begin to open to fear. We can begin to be not so bound, so imprisoned by fear, not so shut off to the unknown, shut off to the vastness of possibility. As we get stronger and see more clearly, we can begin to acknowledge the presence of fear, accept that it is. It's not so easy to just accept that it is. And know that, begin to know that it's not really a solid thing. It comes and goes. It won't take us over if we begin to know this. We begin to lose the fear of fear itself and begin to be able to look it in the eye, so to say. This is a quote from uh, a book called In the Presence of the Sun by Native American author Scott Mamaday. Bota Lee rode easily among his enemies. Once, twice, three and four times. And all who saw him were amazed, for he was utterly without fear. So it seemed. But afterwards he said, Certainly I was afraid. 
I was afraid of the fear in the eyes of my enemies. And from a book called The Fate of the Elephant, we came upon a young male lion with two lionesses. They were working their way toward a Maasai and his herd of cattle. As they drew closer, they began to belly along through the grass, then crouch to eye the cattle. The young male started growling. His tail switched with excitement. He half rose to coil for a running start several times. We'd better help that man, I said. No, Tim said firmly. He knows the lions are there. This is for him to do. He would not want us to interfere. The herder stood staring straight at the cats and slowly raised his spear to a throwing position without once moving his gaze away. From a distance, other herders who had noticed the man's posture drew nearer to watch the standoff, but not too near. They too thought that it was for him to do. This is what he had been trained for as a moran, moran, a herder. Each time the male lion growled and poised itself, the man would shake his spear and spread his stance a bit. Each time the cat was still, the man was still, matching the animal's steadfast, golden-eyed stare. The standoff continued for a quarter of an hour. At last the lions crouched away into a line of thorn scrub, had the herder communicated the slightest hesitation or fear, I think they would have gone for his cattle in a flash. If these youngish lions hadn't known much about the Maasai when they started, they knew something now, and it might help them to survive among people in the future. Anger and fear can color our entire experience. Sometimes it feels like nothing is right, nobody's right, when we're swept away in these states of mind. It's impossible then to be concentrated or to mindfully explore our experience of the present moment with this spirit of discovery. To practice and to understand, we need to be able to come close, very close, and to investigate our experience without pushing it away or without pulling away from it, without desiring it to be different. So it's important to learn how to work with these states of mind so they're not merely hindrances to our spiritual practice and growth. As Trudy uh, mentioned the other night, anger in the classical teachings is described like a pond on top of a boiling hot spring. A little bit different description, but the same idea. When we're angry, we can't see clearly. Judging or suppressing or repressing difficult emotions doesn't work. It blocks or deadens our sensitivities, our awareness. And of course, if we act out all of our difficult emotions, we strengthen them, we actually reinforce the habit of them. And we also can get in a lot of trouble, causing a lot of suffering to ourselves or others. These powerful energies can become 
another aspect of our growing mindfulness. Working with these forces can become a source of energy, a source of insight, as we learn to directly observe anger, fear, desire, doubt, and begin to understand how they operate in the mind, how they operate in the body. We don't have to struggle or fight with these forces to overcome them. Mindfulness is an amazing tool. It's seemingly magic, and it's a great protection. With awareness, we can allow these strong energies to teach us how they operate, to teach us their laws, the conditions that they operate in. And we can actually learn to experience these extremes of energy without getting caught up in them or swept away in them or overcome by them. This is a poem by Galway Canal. It's called Crying. Crying only a little bit is no use. You must cry until your pillow is soaked. Then you can get up and laugh. Then you can jump in the shower and splash, splash, splash. Then you can throw open your windows and ha, 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 ha. And if people say, hey, what's going on up there? Ha, ha, sing back. Happiness was hiding in the last tear. I wept it. Ha, ha. There's a great ease and a deep, quiet joy, and maybe not sometimes so quiet, that begins to pervade our life as these transformations of these strong energies begins to happen. Making a decision to transform our mind so that we embody understanding, embody love, embody compassion, and not to turn away, not to run away from difficult states of mind, difficult situations, but to stay still, to stay still and be here, be there, in relationship to what is, and see and experience with the growing power of our heart, of our mind, our natural inherent wisdom, our natural inherent ability to love, to grow, to heal, to connect. A good friend of Trudy's and mine, and a Dharma brother, whose picture we put up on the altar, um, is is HIV positive. He wrote a very powerful book uh, about his experience called In the Lap of the Buddha. And the book is written from his experience with AIDS and from from the perspective of his many, many years of Dharma practice. He talks about the virus as being his friend, his ally, as he calls it, in awakening. The virus is his inspiration to wake up and to live, to really, really live right now, moment to moment. In and out of the deepest understandings of the truth. He's actually currently working on another book called flying in the face of death. And with all of this, this powerful practice, this powerful impetus to wake up, 
and his calling his uh, virus, calling the virus his ally in this process. Someone once asked him if they found a cure for AIDS, would he want it? <laughs> Since the disease has been such an important part of his practice. <laughs> and he said he would be the first one to get there, to get cured. He said he'd run over everybody. And then he said that maybe by that time, maybe by that time he would be finished, or at least close to finishing his spiritual work, and he would just sit back with his feet up and be happy. My friend's inspired urgency is actually the truth of all of our lives. We don't know when our death will happen. But we can be certain it will happen at any moment. My friend lives with this reality every day. His body informs him. And his heart and his mind have touched very deeply the experiences of anger, of fear, of hatred, of aversion. These states of mind have been great sources of suffering for him and great sources of the potential of waking up for him. A woman named Idi Illisum, I mentioned her the other night. She was a very unusual person, a very special person. And during these years uh, of suffering, great suffering throughout all of Europe, they were, uh, and suffering for Eddie and many of her friends, they were, it was a time of tremendous, uh, enormous personal growth for her. In a sense, she wrote the counter-scenario for what was going on in the world at that time. Her diaries were an amazing account of the possibility of human be- beings Excuse me, in the midst of immense difficulty. So this is from Eddie. I think that I'll do it anyway. I'll turn inward for half an hour each morning before work and listen to my inner voice, lose myself. You could call it meditation. I'm still a bit wary of that word. But anyway, why not? A quiet half hour within yourself. But it's not so simple, that sort of quiet hour. It has to be learnt. A lot of unimportant litter and bits and pieces have to be swept out first. Even a small head can be piled high inside with irrelevant distractions. So let this be the aim of meditation, to turn one's innermost being into a vast empty plain with none of that treacherous undergrowth to impede the view so that something of God can enter you and something of love too not the kind of love deluxe that you revel in deliciously for half an hour taking pride in how sublime you feel but the love that can apply to small everyday things and at another point she wrote mysticism must rest on crystal clear honesty and can only come after things have been stripped down to their naked reality. So Eddie, with her clear vision, she actually instinctively knew that she wasn't going to return from the camps, and she asked one of her friends to keep her diaries for her, 
after she died. She somehow knew she wanted to leave a trace of something uh, to share the solutions that she had found for herself in her very difficult life. Her last entry in her diary. Ever since last night, I have been lying here trying to assimilate just a little bit of the terrible suffering that has to be endured all over the world. To accommodate just a little of the great sorrow and the coming of winter that the coming of winter has in store. It could not be done. Today will be a hard day. I shall lie quiet and try to anticipate something of all the days that are to come. And then she wrote, which I read the other night, when I suffer for the vulnerability, is it not for my own vul vulnerability that I really suffer? And she ends her diary with, we should be willing to act as a balm for all wounds. The survivors from the camp, many of them spoke about Eddie as being, as I said the other night, a very luminous personality to the very last of her days there. So sometimes in the midst of extreme situations, difficult ones such as this, wonderful, beautiful extremes, we might be very present. We might be um, very clear, kind of crystalline, pure, present. Can we be so acutely present in the more ordinary extremes of our daily life? We like extremes, actually. I sometimes think of us human beings as uh, experience junkies. But can we be so alive, can we be so alive in any moment, given any moment, in the ordinary extremes of our life, just simply present, and not holding on to some imagined or wished-for experience. Can we be so present as Eddie, as Gavin, as we are sometimes? Which really translates as being very fully alive with equanimity, with balance in our life. Freedom can happen in the most difficult, the most ordinary, the most wonderfully pleasant circumstances of our life. In any moment, one clear moment of mindfulness is a moment of freedom. And our relationship to the experiences, the way we, we, we relate to the experiences of our life, is the key. Fortunately, our life contains a balance of pleasant, wonderful, lovely, and unpleasant. So mindfulness allows us to see it as it is and to keep, keep our mind and our heart open in the midst of all of the passing show. That's our possibility. I'd like to close with a poem. It's by a man named Roger Keyes. Hokusai says, Hokusai says, look carefully. He says, pay attention, notice. 
He says, keep looking, stay curious. He says, there is no end to seeing. He says, look forward to getting old. He says, keep changing. You just, keep, you just get more who you really are. He says, get stuck, accept it. Repeat yourself as long as it's interesting. He says, keep doing whatever you love. He says, keep praying. He says, every one of us is a child. Every one of us is ancient. Every one of us has a body. He says, every one of us is frightened. He says, every one of us has to find a way to live with fear. He says, everything is alive. Shells, buildings, people, fish, mountains, trees. Wood is alive. Water is alive. Everything has its own life. Everything lives inside us. He says, live with the world inside you. He says, it doesn't matter if you draw or write books. It doesn't matter if you saw wood or catch fish. It doesn't matter if you sit at home and stare at the ants on your veranda or the shadows of the trees and the grasses in your garden. It matters that you care. It matters that you feel. It matters that you notice. It matters that life lives through you. Contentment in life, contentment is life living through you. Joy is life living through you. Satisfaction and strength is life living through you. Peace is life living through you. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Look, feel. Let life take you by the hand. Let life live through you. Let's sit for a moment. 